Amen. All right. Um, so I want to just share a little bit, a little story or kind of a principle with you that I experienced growing up. You know, I have not always been a church person. Um, my family was not a church attending family. And so it was in 1995 when my parents were going through divorce that we started attending a church. So I was not born a Christian and neither were you, by the way, just so you know, but we'll get into that some other day. Uh, but when I started attending church, started going to church, uh, <laughs> I found that these church people talk weird. Um, they would use these phrases. I had no idea what they were talking about. They would say, uh, oh, pray for traveling mercies. I'm like, what? What is traveling mercies? I found out that that's like pray that I don't get in a car accident or something like that. Um, we would do prayer requests, but we would always have these unspoken prayer requests. I have an unspoken. And I'm like, then why are you talking? What, to, give me the juicy gossip. I want to hear this and call it prayer. Um, so there were traveling mercies and unspoken prayer requests. And then I also learned this term, backslidden. Do you guys, have you ever heard the term backslider or backslidden or to backslide? Okay. I had to figure these things out using context clues. Generally, to backslide means that you start off following Jesus, you're doing well, you're obedient, you're part of a church, all these, you know, the things you would think of as a Christian. But then at some point, you kind of cool off in your devotion to Jesus and you're not following quite as hard, and maybe you're not as involved in a church, you're not serving maybe, maybe you're, you don't really have much of a private devotional life. <clears throat> and in some extreme cases, not only are you cooling off, but you're turning your back on Jesus, the church, and the Bible, and walking away from Jesus. So that was a, I didn't know that that was a thing when I became a Christian, I, this, you know, this was presented to me as like a whole life decision or a whole life response to God that you gave him everything. So as a young person, I would observe the backslidden uh, experience of other people, and it was confusing to me. And I, that still is confusing to me, frankly. It's still confusing to me that that happens. I know that it happens. I've been watching it happen for 25 years now as a Christian that sometimes people seem like they're really on fire for Jesus and then something happens to cause them to cool off or totally turn their back on Jesus. I've also noticed, it seems to me like backsliding is just basically spiritual relapse. That there are so many similarities between a person that relapses into substance abuse and also spiritual relapsing. And often the two go hand in hand. That there, there are a lot of similarities, a lot of things that cross over. Uh, often when a person relapses with substances, there's some sort of crisis or moment in, that happens in their life and they just, I, they cannot cope with it. And so it drives them to whatever familiar coping mechanism that they've had in the past and they run to that. Well, that happens in our spiritual lives too. When something happens that causes us to totally question the goodness of God, the existence of God, the nearness of God, we kind of start to cool off. And it, rather than using the term backslidden, I want to use the term spiritual relapse. And spiritual relapse is a real thing. Uh, many of us go through it. Many of us experience it. <coughs> Sometimes it's a short little thing. 
Sometimes it takes years. And uh, sometimes people never recover from it. Never, people never return to Jesus. Now, that is one of the reasons that our church has developed some strategies on how to make disciples that sustain revival, which is our vision statement to my right. Our vision is to make disciples that sustain revival. We have five strategies for how to do that. Value the manifest presence of God. Sometimes people have spiritual relapses because they just don't value God. I don't say that judgmentally. It's just the reality. Sometimes people, they're not filled with the Holy Spirit, and so they're trying to do this thing, this Christian life, on their own, with their own power, and man, that's exhausting. You know, you really need the Holy Spirit. Sometimes people experience spiritual relapse because they're not lapse because they're not living in community. Uh, it's kind of like not going to a meeting if you're in recovery. You're not living in community. You're not getting the encouragement uh, that you need. There aren't people to support you because you're not in relationship. Sometimes people experience spiritual relapse because there's not a sense of spiritual formation in their life, meaning there's not spiritual disciplines like studying the Bible and praying and uh, confessing sin and other things that happen on a regular basis that keep us connected and dependent to, on Jesus. And then sometimes people experience spiritual relapse. This is our fifth strategy because they have, there is an emotional issue that has come up and they are not pursuing emotional health. So our fifth strategy is to pursue emotional health because we often forfeit an incredible amount of spiritual growth because of some emotional issue that has taken place in our lives or an unresolved long-term emotional issue that just kind of comes up to the surface. And we might put 10 long years into following Jesus and then there is an issue of unforgiveness or grief or anxiety that causes us to undo 10 good years. You know what I'm saying? You kind of throw it out. Jesus, I think, foresaw this in his disciples because in the Sermon on the Mount, he addressed unforgiveness. Oh, that's an emotional issue, isn't it? You get offended or hurt, and you're not able to forgive the person that's done that to you. Grief, Jesus suggests grief, but blessed are those who mourn. And today we're going to look at where Jesus addressed anxiety or worry. Now, G Jesus, I think, saw something in his disciples, which was potentially the propensity or the tendency for spiritual relapse. You guys know Peter relapsed spiritually. Peter was following God hard. Peter uh, was the first one to know that Jesus was the Christ. He received that information from God. And Jesus said, I'm going to build the church on that revelation that I'm the Christ. That's the rock on which I'm going to build the church. And uh, it wasn't too long after that when Peter uh, relapsed and rebuked Jesus. And then Peter denied even knowing Jesus three times. Judas relapsed and never recovered. There was a guy in the New Testament named Demas. We don't know much about Demas. He's just mentioned a few times. He was a follower of Jesus, and then Demas loved the world so much that he turned on Jesus and began to make life difficult for the apostles. Ananias and Sapphira had a, a short little spiritual relapse that ultimately ended up costing them their lives. 
so this was something that happened in the Bible. Uh, John Mark, in the midst of a missions trip with Paul and Barnabas, John Mark got to a certain city and he's like, I'm out of here. I, this is too hard. And he essentially abandoned them and Paul was upset with him. He, he, him, Paul and Barnabas argued about John Mark big time to the point where Paul and Barnabas were like, we can't even work together anymore. Because Barnabas liked John Mark and Paul was like, forget that guy. So and Paul eventually got over it and John Mark grew up and they reconciled and Paul eventually said, John Mark is helpful to me. But the New Testament is full of these stories of people that have these spiritual relapses. And so many of them are caused by lack of uh, spiritual formation, lack of the filling of the Holy Spirit, and lack of uh, dealing with emotional stuff. And that's what causes many of our spiritual relapses is there's something emotional we haven't dealt with. We've already talked about unforgiveness. We've already talked about grief. Today we're going to talk about anxiety because I think anxiety or worry is one of the things that causes us to have a hard time staying faithful and sustaining a spiritual uh, vitality in our lives. So I want to read this passage from, the, this is the Sermon on the Mount, this is Jesus speaking. He gets to this passage and he starts to talk to his disciples about worry or anxiety. In this passage in Greek, worry and anxiety are the same word, so I'm not changing it. They're the same word. Jesus says, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble, trouble of its own. Uh, yeah, that's my life verse, Gene. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I also paraphrase that each kid has enough trouble of its own. Um, so, uh, before we get into, we're going to break this passage down very literally uh, today. But before we get into that, I want to talk to you about anxiety uh, in general. Because I, we, I think we've got to get technical for a moment. I want you to know that I know there is more than one type of anxiety. Okay, not all anxiety is the same. There are different causes of anxiety. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, the Apostle Paul writes, Jesus is going to sanctify you body, soul, and spirit. And Paul lays out this three-part structure for how human beings exist. We all have a body, we have a soul, 
we have a spirit. Those are not the same thing. Okay, so 1 Thessalonians 5.23, I'm just going to show you this little diagram here. You all have a body, okay, some more than others. The body is your organs, your bones, your blood vessels, your skin. You guys know what a body is, right? Okay. You all have a soul, which is your mind, your will, and your emotions, or another way to say it would be your thoughts, your feelings, and your choices, okay? You also have a spirit. Your spirit uh, is either alive because Jesus has made it alive when you came to him, or your spirit is dead. This is why John uh, talked, well, Jesus talked about in John 3 that you must be born again. He was not talking about your body. He was talking about your spirit. Your spirit must be born again. And that's what happens when a person comes to Jesus. We use the term regeneration. Their spirit is regenerated the moment that they trust Jesus. And really, the way we're supposed to live is from the inside out. That when our spirit has been born again or regenerated, we experience union with Jesus. The Holy Spirit dwells with our spirit. And that's where we operate out of spiritual gifts. That's our true identity. It's where we experience our true connection with God. If our spirit is regenerated, it should in fact impact our choices, shouldn't it? It should also impact our thoughts, our feelings. That's our soul. It should also impact what we do with our body, right? How we live, how we use our body. So this is essentially the way to live. So it's this three-part, we call this a trichotomy. You can just say those three things, the body, soul, and the spirit. Each one of these responds or causes anxiety differently. There is a physical form of anxiety that is uh, it's caused by simply chemical imbalances or some sort of chemical reaction in the body that causes heart palpitations, stress, and you feel that. It's intense. And that physical anxiety is not necessarily emotional, although it might result in the emotions, but it's caused in the body, and it's not necessarily spiritual, okay? It's physical, and often it can be addressed through a prescription from a medical professional, okay? And we don't wanna stigmatize that and make people feel bad if they take a little bit of medicine, because Jesus uh, provided medicine for us and he provided doctors for us. Um, so we don't want to stigmatize that, but we also don't want to normalize it. We want to overcome it. Does that make sense? Okay. So there's a physical cause of anxiety that maybe a doctor can help you with. There's also a, an emotional or soulish form of anxiety that is based on Maybe some thoughts, lies, and thoughts that you have, or some feelings that are unresolved. Maybe this is where uh, you were abused or hurt as a kid, and that has caused you to believe some lies. And the way that we can address that is through maybe counseling, especially a biblical counselor who can help you see your experiences and interpret them in light of Scripture and God's truth. And then finally, there is a spiritual form of anxiety. This spiritual form of anxiety can be caused by just straight up a feeling of separation from God that many non-Christians feel. They feel like they are separated from God because they are. So they have anxiety about their, their, their destiny and their fate. Uh, it can also be caused by spiritual warfare. It can be a demonic attack. It can be 
uh, Satan attacking, trying to cause anxiety. So why is it important that we understand anxiety as having these multiple causes? Because if someone needs a prescription and you decide to shake them until the demons come out, it's not going to work. Okay? I don't care how hard you shake them, it's not going to fix their chemicals. All right? They're not a battery. Um, it doesn't work on batteries either, just so you know. But I always think it does still. Um, I like to shake batteries in soda and then put it in the fridge. If a person is experiencing demonic oppression that's expressing itself through anxiety, you cannot counsel them out of that, nor can you prescribe something for that. So we have to diagnose these things correctly, and then the good news is Jesus heals any of those. I mean, does Jesus protect us from spiritual warfare? Yeah, he gives us victory. Is Jesus the good counselor? The wonderful counselor? Sure. I mean, he can heal those hurts in our heart. Does Jesus heal physical bodies? Yes. I mean, Jesus can do all of these things, but if we misdiagnose these things, we're going to end up doing more harm than good, and we want to understand, how do we solve this particular issue? Does this person need deliverance? Do they need biblical counseling? Or do they need to see a physician? In any case, we pray the whole time. We pray that Jesus steps in and gives the person victory the whole time. Does that make sense? Okay, great. Um, I want to give us something to aim for as we talk about emotional health, and we're gonna, then I'm going to move on. Uh, this is a definition from Dr. Neil Anderson. He is a biblical counselor, and he says, An emotionally healthy person is one who is in touch with reality and is relatively free from anxiety. I love this definition because it's simple and it also resonates with my experience in life. It seems to me that the people who have no anxiety are also not in touch with reality. Like, they don't understand that bills are due. They don't understand that you gotta study for tests. They're carefree, oh man, it'll figure itself out. And I'm like, no! I'm the one that's going to have to figure it out for you. I feel like I live with, no, not live with in my house, but like have those people in my life. Okay, sorry, whatever. Sorry, Kendra. You're responsible, whatever. It's Josiah. He's the one. They just like, la, 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 everything is great. And it's like leaving a trail of destruction behind them because they don't follow through with their commitments and, you know, take their responsibilities because they don't understand how the real world works. Then... There are people who totally get how the real world works and they are up all night worrying about it. I know bills are due, believe me. I've been worrying about bills for a week. I know my car needs inspected. I'm anxious about it. I'm trying to find the cheapest place. I'm spending an hour trying to save a dollar. So you're e we're either, on one extreme or the other, we either have no anxiety but we're not really in touch with reality or we're very in touch with reality and filled with anxiety, Neil Anderson is saying an emotionally healthy person is in touch with reality, they get how the real world works, they're responsible, but they're also relatively free from anxiety. They, they're not worried about it. You know, does that make sense? Isn't that, wouldn't that be a nice place to live? You don't have to live aloof and like out of touch with reality, but at the same time you're not racked with anxiety. So. Jesus addresses anxiety with five rhetorical questions. We're going to go back to the passage 
and walk through these five questions. Jesus takes them through this logical progression. He's like, if this, then this. If this, then this. And he does it by using five rhetorical questions. So a rhetorical question is when you ask someone a question and the answer is so obvious, you don't even need to say it. You know, like if I said, if I stood in front of a church and said, you guys happy to be at church today? That's a rhetorical question. If you're here, I'm assuming you're happy. I don't really need you to answer it. Does that make sense? It's like when my wife says, do you want dinner? Like that's a rhetorical question. Yes. I'd, she doesn't even need an answer because it's, you know the answer. So when you ask a question that's so obvious, you already know the answer, but you're just trying to, it's more of a reminder in the form of a question. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay, that's a rhetorical question. Jesus asks the crowd that's listening to the Sermon on the Mount five rhetorical questions to make his point about anxiety. The first rhetorical question, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. I'm going to summarize that by saying, isn't there more to life than food and clothing? And that's the rhetorical question. Of course, we all know the answer. Yeah, there is more to life than food and clothing, isn't there? So he asks them that question to provide some perspective, to help them focus on the things that are right. You know, okay, yeah, Jesus calming the down. Okay, there's more to life than food and clothing. There are things that are more important. But why do we get caught up in that so easily? What a trap that we get caught up on. We get worried about our clothes, and we're like, oh, I don't have the right outfit for this or that. I mean, I don't know how many of you get worried about how to, what to wear on Sunday mornings to, to, to church still, or what to wear to work, or an event, or something like that. But, <laughs> We get worried about clothing, or maybe our, we don't think our clothing's nice enough, or something like that. And, or food, like, ah, there's no food in the fridge. What's going to happen? We're going to starve. I don't think anyone here is in danger of starving. Okay? Amen. What are you saying over there? Tanya. Tanya said that, just so you all know, all right? She's saying we're all husky. All right. We get worried about these things, and I think... Here's the point Jesus is trying to make. There's more to life than your material needs. But why do we get tripped up with that so often? I mean, that's maybe the most common thing that trips us up. And I think we don't know our purpose in life, so we get easily sidetracked on these lesser things. And I want to share with you what I think is your purpose and mine. And I'm stealing this from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and I'm using the paraphrase that John Piper used, that your chief reason for existing is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. That's your purpose. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. John Piper tweaks it and he says, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. That's your purpose. If you don't know your purpose, you're going to get caught up in material things, my car, my clothes, my food, my relationships. If you know that your purpose is to glorify God by enjoying him forever, well, you can do that no matter what car you drive or what bus you take, right? Can you glorify God in older clothing? Yeah, sure. Can you glorify God when you're picking through leftovers in the fridge? Sure. 
right? Can you glorify God on the bus? Yes. Oh, well, I wasn't sure about that, but okay. I'm gonna, okay, you can glorify God on the bus, okay, because I'm usually needing to be restrained when I'm on the bus. So we can glorify God in any circumstance, right? So if the most important thing in life is to glorify God and to enjoy him, well, all these other material needs that we have, and God knows that we have them, but they, they come into their proper place as not the most important thing. The second rhetorical question that Jesus asks is, and he's referring to the birds of the air that uh, they don't save up food, but God provides for them. Jesus says, are you not worth much more than those birds? Which I'm just going to paraphrase that question is, don't you know how much you're worth to God? It, right. I mean, Jesus died for us. That right there determines our value. Not only are we made in God's image, we're purchased by God's son, Jesus, who was also God. That, I mean, the price tag, this is going to sound like I'm stretching it a little bit, but I'm really not. And you, I invite you to find a scripture that contradicts me right now. The, the value that you have before God is equal to Jesus. That might sound like, oh, that's like a lot. Yeah, that's the point of the gospel, guys. That's how valuable you are to God, that he substituted Jesus for you. That the price tag on your life was the, the blood of Jesus, the death of Jesus. That's how valuable you are to God. So when you put these things in these two first questions together, there's more to life than food and clothing, and I have incredible value to God. I just feel like relaxed. Okay, I can trust that. Uh, the, these things I'm worried about aren't even the most important thing, and I'm very important to God. And you say that with humility, not swagger. Yeah. You know. Um, third rhetorical question: Who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? Um, what Jesus is addressing here is the perceived benefits of anxiety. Sometimes we think anxiety actually works for something. Like, we think anxiety is the same as being responsible. It's not. You can be responsible and totally free from anxiety. That's a great thing. But responsibility, we think it has, uh, responsibility is what made me a boss. Responsibility is what made me responsible. Responsibility got me, or anxiety got me good credit. You can do all those things without anxiety. You know, and Jesus asked this question, can anxiety or worry add a single hour to your life? And we know now, not only does it not add hours to your life, it takes hours from your life, right? So congrats on the good credit and being a boss. You're dead at 40 <laughs> from an early heart attack. Uh, you don't add time to your life. You subtract time from your life by uh, filling your life with anxiety. It can affect heart disease, blood pressure. It can affect your diet, make you eat junk, steal sleep from you, drive you to substance abuse. None of those extend your life. Anxiety does not help life expectancy. It robs you of life expectancy. All right, Fifth, uh, fourth question, and he's kind of leading us through this progression. You know, if there's more to life than food and clothing. You're incredibly valuable to God. There's no benefit to anxiety. The fourth uh, question is, so why are you worried about clothing? And I'm just going to generalize that a little bit and say, 
Why are you worried about anything? Not just clothing. If, if anxiety has no benefit, if you're valuable to God, if there's more to life than these material needs, then why are you worried? Why are you worried about anything? And I think that the answer is, there, I think this is the cause of anxiety. There's something about God that we misunderstand. There's some attribute of God that we don't understand correctly. Uh, it might be, we don't, under, we don't really understand how powerful God is. Because I know our prayers are like, aren't you going to do anything about this? Which is, the subtext of that is, can you, or even, are you good enough that you're going to? So we're not sure how powerful God is. Sometimes we're not sure how good God is. And sometimes we're like, do you even know God? So the fact that God knows everything we call omniscience, the fact that he can do anything we call omnipotence, and the fact that he cares for us would be part of his goodness. And if we aren't convinced that he knows everything, has all power, and is also good, anxiety starts to creep up. I mean, okay, like, oh, I know he could do it. I just don't think he will. So you're questioning God's goodness. Or, I know God loves me. I just can't see what he would do about this. Now you're questioning God's power. Or you say, oh, God's got other bigger things to deal with. Now you're questioning God's ability to handle two thoughts at once, which is his omniscience. Right? If God's all-powerful, all-good, and all-knowing, you don't have any reason left for anxiety. You start to trust him. There are two primary areas of anxiety. This is to, to the question, why are we worried? If we are a smart Alex, we would say to God, here are two areas where we have anxiety. Material provisions. Our house, our car, our food, our clothes, our TV. Got to have HBO. Uh, like, we're worried about this stuff. We get anxious about it. Material provisions, that's one area. The second area is the future. It might not be material. You might not be able to put a dollar sign on it. You know, like, what's the future going to look like? Am I going to have health? Uh, what's going to go on with my job? What about my neighborhood? What about my relationships? What's, I'm going to die. And what are the circumstances of my death going to be like? And that causes anxiety in us. And it's, there's no dollar amount to those things. It's just concern about the future. And so the, the way that we address those areas of anxiety goes back to these rhetorical questions. Isn't there more to life than food and clothing? Can you glorify God no matter what happens at your job? Sure. Can you enjoy God no matter what happens in your relationships? Yes. So if you find that to be your purpose, you can do that in any circumstance. Don't you know how valuable you are to God? Will anxiety add anything to your life? So then the fourth question, why are you so worried? And then the fifth question, I'm going to summarize this as well. The fifth question is, will he not much more clothe you? Because he's addressing clothing at the moment. But the general question is, don't you know he's going to take care of you? He's going to take care of this. He's going to take care of this one way or another. Now, I know God well enough to know he doesn't always take care of things the way I would take care of things. But he always does it better that's, that's the sticking point. Yes, God doesn't always do it your way, but he always does it better than your way. 
Not different, better. You understand? Like, if, if God and I did things differently, I'd be like, Lord, just hear me out on this. But he does it better. So I should always trust that God's going to do some sort of upgrade in my life when he's taking me through something that I'm anxious about. He likes to care for us because he's good. He likes to provide for us. He likes to protect us. He, he even likes to lead us through difficult circumstances so that we get closer to him, but he's good. So these five rhetorical questions, I'm going to review them one more time. Is there more to life than food and clothing? Don't you know how much you're worth to God? Who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? So why are you worried? Won't God take care of you? Those five questions, I think, put us on a trajectory or lay down like a pathway for some other rhetorical questions that I want to ask you today. Who do you think got you your job in the first place? You worried about your job? Okay, but who got you that job? And maybe you are going to have to switch jobs, but God got you the last job. He can get you the next job, right? I mean, if God got you the job that you have or had, can't he take care of this moving forward, right? This is another question I feel like Jesus would ask us. Didn't I breathe life into your kids? I know you're nervous about your kids, but I breathed life into them. I made them. I animated them. I put them together. I knit them together in, your, in their mother's womb. Like, I made these kids. I got it, man. When you're sleeping, I'm watching them. When you can't do anything about their health, I can. When you don't know their future, I do. It makes it easier to trust God when you realize he, they're his, you're the babysitter. But you don't get any time off, by the way. How about this question from God? Can I still do miracles? Yeah, he sure can. And he, and he does and he will. And when you, this is the same Jesus who was dead and is now alive. Nothing you're facing is more difficult than that. Did I not give myself to die on your behalf? That right there answers his goodness. Um, did I not give myself to die on your behalf? Final hypothetical rhetorical question. What happened last time you got all worked up? <laughs> did, did anything come of that? I mean, the, the last time you got all anxious, how did that work out? It, it never works out. It raises your blood pressure. You know, anxiety is just fear looking for a cause. I'm already, I'm already upset. Give me something to be upset about. I'm already anxious. Give me something to be afraid of. That's all anxiety is. Fear looking for a cause. It never results in anything spiritual. You might get some short-term benefit, but there's never long-term benefit to anxiety. Anxiety is such a distraction for us, and anxiety keeps us from actually pursuing God because anxiety makes us search for other things. We start searching for provision. We start searching for purpose. We start searching for comfort, and anxiety drives us on all these false little searches. So now I'm so busy looking for these things, I have no time to seek God. So when Jesus is dealing with their anxiety, the last thing that he tells them is, seek first 
his kingdom, God's kingdom, and God's righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He's saying prioritize the pursuit of God and his kingdom. Let all the little mini details of life fall behind that. And I'm not telling you to be irresponsible. I'm telling you to put Jesus first and trust that he's good enough and powerful enough and knowledgeable enough to care for these needs. Because sometimes we don't follow God because we've got to get our needs met. Right? We're, we're too busy meeting needs that we maybe don't even really have to actually put in the effort to seek God and his righteousness and seek the kingdom. So, uh, anxiety prevents us from seeking and following God because we seek other things and sometimes we're more responsive to our fear than we are to God. God says something and we're like, hmm, I'm going to have to pray about that, Lord. And then you get a anxious text message. Oh, I believe that immediately. And, and it's like, man, if we were as fast to pray at the prompting of the Holy Spirit as we were to worry about something, we would be the best prayer warriors on earth. Prayer is like, hmm, I'm going to think about this. I'll get there. Anxiety is like, whoosh. I'm there, Lord. I'm anxious immediately. Because we're more responsive to our fear than we are to God sometimes. And it prevents us from seeking the kingdom. A couple more really quick thoughts about anxiety. Uh, I found that the bigger you think you are, the more anxiety comes into your life. The more important that you think you are, the more anxiety comes into your life. So if you think you're carrying the whole world on your shoulders... Why wouldn't you be anxious? It's your job to control everything, right? Which is why I think it's peaceful when we go stand in front of a giant mountain or stand at the ocean, because it's a nice little reminder that you ain't squat. You don't control anything, barely, not even yourself, even though you should. I mean, I think that's why treks into nature are so helpful for us. They put us in our place. Okay, Lord, I guess I'm really not in charge of squat <laughs> right now. I, I want to give you guys a gift today. Here's the gift. You're not that important. I'm sorry. I, and I, that doesn't mean I don't love you. I do love you. You and I are not a big deal. The world existed for millennia before us. It's going to exist after us. You know, like, I'm sorry to say this, but when we die, it's going to be a little tiny blip on the radar, and then the rest of the world's going to go on. The, the world's not going to stop spinning on the day and be like, oh, everyone pause, moment of silence for Scott. Uh, there's two Scots here, so uh, you don't know which one I'm talking to. It's, I'm sorry, it's just going to keep on moving without us, guys. It was moving without us beforehand. And I don't say that to make you feel insignificant. I say that to take the weight of the world off of your shoulders. So you don't have to worry about keep the, keeping the world spinning. You just go ahead and pursue the kingdom. Glorify God, enjoy him forever, and let God run the world. How's that sound? Okay, good. I mean, he's doing that anyway. So if you try to run it, you're just making a powerful enemy. Um, I want to tell this story and then wrap up. Uh... A few years ago, when Aiden was in first grade, 
Aiden is my first son. He was six years old at the time. He was finishing first grade, so it was his first year with homework. I can't believe they give homework in first grade now. I feel like I didn't get homework till sixth grade or something, but this kid was bringing home homework every day. It was his first day of, uh, first year in school other than kindergarten, and um, about two-thirds of the way through the year, like February, he started getting these nervous movements, nervous uh, ticks and twitches, and his fingers would just kind of like go like this all the time. Even when he was asleep, his fingers would just move. And he would blink a lot, and his head would just kind of like go up and just move kind of erratically. If he was watching TV, he would just like this a little. And I could tell, I mean, it looked to me as a parent like they were like nervous ticks. And... As a parent, you know, this is our, the first kid we had had that had done this, and it was abnormal for him, and we were concerned. We took him to a doctor, and the doctor said, yeah, it seems like it's some sort of nervous tick, and, you know, why don't we wait on this and see what happens? We might have to run some tests, uh, do a brain scan or something, and we didn't get that to that point, but that was in the back of our head, like, maybe this is going to be a permanent issue. So he finished first grade, and he had that those nervous ticks for a few months. And, you know, as a parent, you watch that and it's like a little heart-wrenching because what's happening with my son, I can't do anything about it. And uh, sometimes I'm not always the best dad. And I would be like, dude, just stop it. Stop with the finger thing. And he'd be like, I can't. And I, and I would know he couldn't, but there was another part of it that was like, you have control of all things, which I know isn't true, but... It was, it was hard to watch and feel powerless about. So the school year ended. We took a little trip. We went, to, we went to my dad's house. At that time, my dad was living in central Pennsylvania. And we went out there, and we were getting ready for bed one night. We were putting the kids to bed at my dad's house. And I had Aiden. We were sitting out on the porch. I had Aiden on one knee, Emma on the other knee. Josiah wasn't born yet. And Aiden's twitching and looking and stuff like that. And uh, I just said, and I'm, at this point, I'm mostly like brokenhearted. I'm not even trying to be a pastor or anything. I'm just a dad who's concerned. <clears throat> and I just said, you know I love you, right? He's like, yeah. And I said, you know that no matter what you do, I'm going to love you. And he said, even if I destroy the whole world? And I said, yes, I would still love you even if you destroyed the whole world. To which Emma, who was three at the time, said, Aiden, he loves you. <laughs> and when that little tiny conversation happened, I'm, I'm holding him. I have one on each knee. I felt Aiden just kind of go, I felt like looseness. And the twitching stopped immediately. He never, he, that, the next morning, nothing. We got through the whole summer, nothing. Now, you guys know what happened in that moment. I, I won't even say that that was miraculous, although I do think God was involved. I just think that was a kid realizing I'm safe, I'm loved. Um... I want to tell you more to this story, though, because I, th I want to be very real about this. In second grade, it came back. 
same, about the same time, to, toward the end of the school year, just that was enough homework, that was enough getting up early, that was enough of this and enough of that. It, it came back, it was less severe. It came back, school ended, it went away. Third grade, it came back again, less still. School ended, it went away. I mean, it went away almost the first day of vacation this year. Uh, on its own, we didn't have to do anything about it. So it is a little bit of a thing uh, that we experience. But there, now I'm sharing with you that it came back for a reason. Because I need you to know what this word sustain means. Sustain doesn't mean one and done. You're sick, God heals you. That does not mean you'll never be sick again. You beat a sin in your life, good. That doesn't mean you'll never have to fight that battle again. You know what I mean? You win and then you fight another battle. Sometimes we don't understand that because we beat something once, we're never going to have to fight it again. We're going to have to fight it again. So we learn this you know, now we don't get as upset about it because it's more mild and we know it's just a pattern and hopefully by fifth grade there's nothing there. But this is the thing that happened with Aiden. He's sitting in my lap, sitting in his dad's lap, and here I am, and I didn't even realize this until this week, here I am asking him rhetorical questions. Don't you know I love you? Don't you know there's nothing you can do and what did Jesus do with his disciples? He gathered them up and he started asking them rhetorical questions. Don't you know there's more to the world and more to life than food and clothing? Don't you know how much you value God or God values you? And I, I think this is kind of the process that God takes us through to create some self-awareness in us and to identify maybe lies that we believe about him and about us and about the universe and life by asking us questions. So what we're going to do today to wrap up, there's, there's two things. One, we're going to read some renunciations and some affirmations together as a group. Secondly, uh, I have some people that are going to be praying for you. In a moment, I'm going to invite them up. Uh, but Kevin, if you wouldn't mind coming up with me, we're going to start by doing this. We're going to read these or make these renunciations. And I want you to, you know, check this out. Read these in advance because I don't want to trick you into reading something you don't mean. But we're going to read, in the name of Jesus, I renounce anxiety, worry, and fear. I repent of believing the lie that God is not good enough or powerful enough. I repent of giving excessive attention to things that worry me. I'm not saying you should totally ignore things. I'm saying no excessive attention, right? Uh, that attention should be directed toward God and his faithful character, and finally, we're going to repent of not trusting God. This, I know, was important in my wife's life uh, when she realized there is no place in the Bible where it says, go ahead and be anxious. You know, the Bible talks about anger, but it also leaves a door open for appropriate anger. The Bible talks about hate, but it also leaves a door open for appropriate hate. There's no back door for anxiety. There's just never an appropriate time for anxiety in the life of a Christian, which means... Consistent, prolonged anxiety is not just a personality trait, it's a sin. We repent of sin. We don't say, oh, that's just me, I'm kind of a worrywart. No, you're a sinner. And you need to repent and get free of it. I don't say that, you guys know I was joking when I said that, right? All right. You, you need to repent of sin, not come up with a cute name for it. 
and accept it, like worry wart. So that's what we're going to renounce. And then we're going to affirm this. We're going to affirm that God is good, that he's a protector and a provider, that we are God's child, Christ's friend, and have direct access to God, that through Jesus and Je only through Jesus are we forgiven of sin, made complete, and sealed with the Holy Spirit, and empowered to live as overcomers. We're going to do these things together, and then I want to also ask if uh, Shay, Anna, and John and Judy, would you guys come join me up front? If you would like to be prayed for, if you want victory over anxiety, these four folks are going to be up here uh, for you to pray with you. All right, come on up, guys. Would you all stand with me? So if you're in an agreement, we're going to read these together. In the name of Jesus Christ, I renounce anxiety, worry, and fear. I repent of believing the lie that God is not good enough or powerful enough to care for and provide for me. I repent of giving excessive attention to things that worry me and make me fearful or anxious, rather than giving my attention to God and his faithful character. I repent of not trusting God. I affirm that God is good. I affirm that God is a protector and a provider. I affirm that I am God's child and Christ's friend and that I have direct access to God through the Holy Spirit. I affirm that through Christ I am forgiven of sin, made complete, sealed with the Holy Spirit, and empowered to live as one who overcomes obstacles, difficult circumstances, challenges, and troubles. So Lord, we celebrate you and affirm you while also renouncing anxiety, fear, and worry. I, we know that you have a better life for us than to be racked with fear and worry. So Lord, we want to step into trust and faith in who you are and in your character. We don't want to just feel better. We want to know you. We want to know you better. Lord, I pray for victory over anxiety, that we would overcome it. In the name of Jesus, amen. amen. If you would like to be prayed for, come on up and have some of these folks pray for you. Otherwise, have a great week. Feel free to stick around and get some refreshments. See you next week.